0: Terribly happy guy. Then he
1: ate a moldy pumpkin pie.
0: Then he thought that he just couldn't die. So, Ned, he
1: laughed. So, all Hello, my friends. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to episode 4-460 of the Run Run Live podcast. Here we are in July, moving into August of 2021, and here we've turned the corner on summer, and the days are already getting shorter up here in New England. So what's the update? I have more doctor's appointments than an Um, (laughs) 80-year-old. Six months into the sore knee, I tried to increase my mileage uh, last time we talked, actually, but the knee got sore, so I took a week off from running. I had my second MRI to see what's going on in there, and we'll have a follow-up appointment with the knee guy to see if we can figure out why it still hurts. So the first time we did the MRI, he saw a stress fracture in there. But there's something else going on, too, you know, because it's still sore, still has that flat spot, but we'll figure it out. And if he can't give me an answer, dang it, I'll just kick him to the curb and do it myself. I'll rehab myself. I'll do my own surgery. I'll fix it. I've been riding my bike a couple times a week, hitting the gym to lift. I feel pretty strong, but, you know, it's not the same. And one of the big challenges for me is those 3,000 calories a week I'd normally burn by running. I really have to watch what I eat or I'll just balloon up. And even though I'm eating fairly cleanly, I'm not losing any weight because I'm just not burning those calories on a day-to-day basis. And I eat probably, you know, 2,000 calories a day, no sugar, no carbs, But, uh, yeah, so I haven't had a sandwich in nine months or a real pizza. The cauliflower pizza isn't bad, but it's not the same. So I went down and volunteered as a course marshal for the local triathlon, the Appleman Triathlon. And I've run that race a couple times. It's an interesting course. The bike course has uh, four to five big hills in it. And the run course has a technical single-path trail section up a hill that uh, is especially challenging for people, especially the non-trail runners. And it was raining on Sunday, so they did all that in the mud and the wet. And it was good to get out and volunteer. felt like I was doing something useful, cheer some people on. It was good to see people racing again. I'm taking... Uh, A day off this week to ride a century with my old running buddies should be fun. We're going to ride out to the coast, and there may be a brewery involved. And I mentioned last week that I have been corralled into leading the fitness project for my team where I work. About, I don't know, 20 people, maybe less than 10 of them are heavily involved in this. But I was out hunting for guest speakers, and I ran into today's guest, Larissa. And Larissa runs Strong by Nature Wellness. And her target audience is helping high-achieving individuals who are experiencing burnout. So, of course, I signed her up for an interview. We had a great chat. She's doing honorable and worthy work. And I think it should resonate with some of you. I know it resonated with me. And in section one, I'm going to talk about Olympic marathons. In section two, I'm going to talk about how real athletes deal with career-ending injuries. And I'm still working on turning my other podcast, the After the Apocalypse serial, into a book. I got through season one. It's been hard, you know, what with all the agents calling me and fighting over the right to represent me, throwing money at me. The fans storming the table at the book signings, hanging on my every word, begging me for signatures, and daytime TV producers trying to squeeze me into every broadcast. It's exhausting. All that stuff will happen, it just hasn't happened yet. But I'll tell you something that has happened. This is a good story. One of the people I work with is teaching us a course called something like Infinite Possibilities or something, and it's a lot of that stuff you already know. You know, a little Tony Robbins, a lot of The Secret, right? So if you don't know The Secret, it's a book and a movie and, and sort of a movement that basically says you can manifest anything you want by focusing on it. So for instance, Let's say you want a new job. So you write down all the attributes of your dream job and you visualize it. You sit there and you you visualize what that new job is going to feel like and every day. And if you keep visualizing and affirming that vision of that new job, the universe will hear you and step in and give you what you want. Voila, you've got that new job of your dreams. So The basic premise here is that your thoughts create your reality. Now, I've read all this stuff, and I've done it all before. And I was doing a bit of eye-rolling in some of these sessions. I mean, I like to go to these sort of things, but I'm kind of jaded at this point. I don't really think the secret stuff works, at least not in the magic way that they present it. So there was an exercise, and the exercise was to pick something, anything, and manifest it. And some people picked a feather, and all of a sudden they find feathers everywhere, and some people picked a coin, and all of a sudden they find coins everywhere. So I figured I'd play along, because, you know, I'm helpful that way. And I chose to manifest something simple, a $10 bill. And I actually visualized this $10 bill. I took one out of my wallet, and I visualized it. And three weeks went by without my $10 bill showing up, because like I said, it's a bunch of magical thinking and hokum. And I figured, you know, I'm meeting the universe halfway because I'm always out on the road running and riding. So if anybody is going to find a $10 bill, it's me. So, you know, I'm giving the the universe, a hand here. I'm not making the universe work so hard. And I was starting to get a bit aggravated, what with all these people finding their feathers in their coins, and me, sans $10 bill. I mean, I could ask for $100 bills, right? 10 bucks ain't nothing. Where's my $10, bucks, mister Universe? So let me give you a little scene painting now. I live at the end of a cul-de-sac. I'm the last house. So in front of my mailbox is a circle of pavement. My driveway bumps out into this circle of pavement. This is the sack in the cul-de-sac. So I went for my long ride today and came back in through the circle and up the driveway. My wife was home. She had a flat on her bike, so I fixed it. She left to go for a ride over at the rail Trail, so I jumped in the shower. So I'm just giving you this for sort of the timeline, right? So we're talking about a half an hour here. So after my shower, I grabbed Ollie and we went and got in the truck to go downtown to the police station to pick up my gun license, another story for another day. And as I'm backing into the circle, I see what looks like leaves spread around the circle by my mailbox and up on my lawn. So I throw it in neutral. Neutral put on the parking brake, get out, and take a look. It's a $1 bill, a crisp new $1 bill, and another, and another, and another. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, it's not a $10 bill, but, and I keep picking them up, five of them, six, seven, eight, nine, and that's it, nine $1 bills just appeared between the time my wife left for her ride and the time I went out. And then I'm hunting around in the bushes looking for that $10 bill, because I know it's got to be there, but I didn't find it. So I guess the universe discounted me a dollar for not believing in its hokum, or maybe more likely Massachusetts has a 10% manifestation tax. Anyhow, I've decided to ask the universe for a new knee on with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing
0: with our inner strength. The
1: 2021 Olympic Marathon and some Olympic Marathon thoughts about what's going on. Well, my friends, we have an Olympic Marathon coming up. It will be on August 8th And since I know you folks love the marathon as much as I do, let's talk about that. So I write this eight days before the event. You may already know what has happened. It's been a different sort of Olympics in Tokyo 2021. There have been lots of COVID-related discussions, some doping scandals, some protests, and interestingly enough, a good discussion around mental health. But besides all that, The marathon will close out the track and field events on Sunday the 8th. And there are some special aspects to this year's race. First, the organizers placed the venue 400 miles north of Tokyo to mitigate the summer heat. And this is a good thing, because in the history of the summer games, many of the marathons have been hot sufferfests for the athletes. And although the heat adds to the drama... I'm going to side with the athletes in this one in appreciation of this moving the race north. They also just announced that there will be no spectators, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. I don't know about you, but I think the athletes get a lot of energy from the fans, from the cheering. And the marathon is a great spectacle, and it always has been. The event was part of the first Olympic Games in 1896 in Athens. It was a 25-ish mile race from Marathon to Athens, similar to the journey of Phidippides, to announce the defeat of the Persians. And for the first few marathons, the distance varied. It was between 25-26 miles. The first one was April 10th, 1896, and a Greek water carrier named Spiridon Lewis, he won it in 258.50. And the success of that first Olympic marathon in 1896, inspired a local athletic club in a backwater industrial port named Boston to set up their own version in 1897. Eventually, the distance settled in and was standardized to our 26.2 miles at the London Games in 1908, supposedly to extend the race so the Queen could see it, The ancient Olympics, well, they started way back in the 8th century BC, and that's back before the Romans, way back, and it was part of a religious festival celebrating Zeus. The warring Greek chieftains would put aside their hostility and get together for some naked sprints and wrestling, so, you know, it's a lot like church today. 1904 is what is talked about a lot when people talk about the Olympic marathon. One of the most talked about Olympic games and marathons because it was a total shit show. The International Olympic Committee made the great mistake of letting the Americans host it as part of the St. Louis World Fair, and we promptly turned it into a sideshow like we do. And the winner that year was fed rat poison and brandy to keep him going, and he was carried across the finish line by his trainers. Another runner, DNF, at nine miles uh, into the race, and he got into a car. But then the car broke down a couple miles from the finish, so he figured it would be funny to run the rest away and pretend that he won. Yeah. And in addition, it turns out that the organizers were doing an experiment. They took the hot weather as a good opportunity to test out some theories they had on dehydration. (laughs) So there wasn't that much water on the course, and it was very hot. Now, these shenanigans led to some rule changes, or more appropriately, some rules, one of which is that you can't physically assist a runner. So you may wonder why officials don't jump in to help that poor bastard that collapses 10 feet shy of the finish line, because if they touch him, he's disqualified. This new rule got the winner of the 1908 marathon in London disqualified because his handlers grabbed him just before he crossed the finish line. So Durando Pietri, he won, but he got disqualified and the gold went to the American Johnny Hayes. And some of my favorite iconic Olympic marathon stories include Emil Zatopek, the Czech runner in the 1952 Olympics. After winning the 5K and the 10K, he decided to jump into the marathon. He had never run a marathon before. So he just stuck with the leader, and then he outlasted the field to win. And what I really like about Emil was his old school training. He would run in his army boots, in the snow, carrying a log on his shoulders. He was a tough dude. He was like Rocky. And another great competitor was Frank Shorter, who won in 1972. Now, this is even more amazing considering the level of doping that was going on at the time, uh, particularly with the Russians and the Eastern Europeans. A great story is the first Ethiopian, the first Ethiopian great runner, Abibi Bikila. He won the Olympic marathon in both 1960 and 1964. And in that first race, he famously kicked off his Adidas, Adidas shoes, because they were bothering him, and he ran to the win barefoot. Yep, won the Olympic marathon barefoot. But I still get a lump in my throat every time I see the video of Joan Benoit winning the 1984 Los Angeles Olympic marathon. This was the first time they let women run, and Joan made her move at 20 miles, and no one went with her. She had injured her knee severely and had arthroscopic surgery 17 days before the trials. But she recovered to win the trials and the marathon. And when she entered the stadium alone, way ahead of the pack, it was amazing. She was dialed in. You can just see it in her eyes. And before you say there was no competition, that lead pack that didn't match her move had Greta Waits, Rosa Moda, and Ingrid Christensen all serious record-holding marathoners. And it was a hot day, too. And Jones from Maine, where they don't get a lot of that Los Angeles-type heat. So who's running this year for for the Americans? Well, 35-year-old Galen Rupp, he won the trials. He has competed before at the Olympics and got a bronze in Rio. Jake Riley, 32 years old, finished second. He's He's from the Boulder Track Club. And he earlier trained with the Hansen's Distance Project. He's an All-American out of Stanford. And rounding out the field is our old friend Abdi Abderrahman. At 44 years old, he's a 5 times Olympian and the oldest Olympic marathoner from the USA ever. He was born in Somalia. He moved to Arizona at age 12, and he's been tearing up the running scene for over 25 years. For the women... First in the trials is Alephine Tuliamak from the University of Wichita, and she's running for Team Hoka. She's a 32-year-old Kenyan-American with a long pedigree of professional running, and she became an American citizen in 2016. She's had a busy year, too. She also had a cute little baby girl in 2020. Second at the trials was Molly Seidel a runner out of Wisconsin. She and Alephine broke from the pack at the trials, and Molly was only eight seconds back at the finish. And she's had an amazing cross-country career. She's got a personal best from London in 2020 of 225.10. So odds are that the Olympic marathon will be swept by Africans, but you never know that's what I always loved about the marathon. Anything can happen. It has the capability to find unexpected heroes. So if you'll excuse me, I have to go eat some rat poison followed by a shot of brandy and go for a run. And now for today's featured interview. Welcome, Larissa. How are we doing today?
0: I am great. I'm so excited to be here.
1: No one can see you, but I can see you. You're smiling. <laughs> here. Thanks. So give us the 200 words on uh, who you are and what you do. Yeah,
0: I am a burnout recovery strategist and yoga therapist and a 20-year Air Force veteran. And I've been doing this work for 21 years now. I did it. Most of the time that I was in the military part-time and then now I do it full-time and my company is strong by nature where impact makers finally find peace. So I work with high achievers who want to do amazing work out in the world and I try to help support them in finding balance in their life so that they can feel peaceful, they can feel good in their life and that they can make a positive impact in, in the world in whatever capacity it is that's important to them.
1: Yeah, and now that's why I want to talk to you because I think we can all learn something. We're all in need probably is a better way to put it of that, uh, how to not be burnt out, especially like you said, highly successful or highly motivated individuals, which endurance athletes tend to, a lot of them <laughs> yeah. fall into that bucket, right? Like why is yes. this idiot getting up at five o'clock in the morning to go run 50 miles, right? So self-motivated people. And right now as we're hopefully turning the corner on the pandemic, people are coming out of the work from home, They've had this long hiatus, forced hiatus to reevaluate, to spend time with their families. All this stuff, all these dynamics, and now we're taking another corner and going back to work. Obviously, you're probably seeing a lot of demand for your services, is I guess what I'm saying, because there's a lot of dynamics going on. That's got to really impact people emotionally right now.
0: Yeah, definitely. And unfortunately, most people come to work with me after they have completely burnt out, like ended up in the hospital, ended up on medical leave, because they just couldn't do anymore. Because we have people that are, you're talking about highly successful, high achievers, but they're doing that in every single aspect of their life. It's not just that they're doing it at work, and they're going to work making a positive impact, and then they're balanced at home. It's that they're trying to do the best at work. They're trying to do the best with their significant other, with their kids, with their sport. And it's so many things, and they're not taking a break until they're being forced to.
1: So what are the symptoms of this? And why don't people see them? How does it get yeah. to that point for somebody? Obviously, these are probably smart people, right? Yeah, so they all how, are. Do, how do they get to this point?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's because they just keep thinking tomorrow, I'll take a break tomorrow. And it just continues on that cycle of like, I'm just going to do a little bit more. And they're not recognizing how long they've been in that same state of feeling overwhelmed, struggling with perfectionism, people-pleasing, right? Because the people that I work with, they're impact makers. They want to make a positive impact in the world. They want to do their best. They want to make other people happy. And I was in the military for 20 years. And it's one of the core values is service before self. And so even outside of the military, I work with a lot of people who believe that. It's like, well, if you take care of yourself, then that's selfish. If there's someone else who is in need, if your job needs this task to be done and you say, I'm going to go take a lunch break, then you're lazy. We aren't recognizing all of the little symptoms that are coming up. Like, oh, I start not being able to sleep at night because I'm thinking of all of the stuff that I have to do. I'm not recognizing that I'm snapping at my significant other because I'm just exhausted and burnt out. And then I'm not recognizing that I'm having like digestive issues, or that I don't understand why my foot keeps bothering me every time I run. And there's all these little things that are just piling up, but we're ignoring them until oftentimes it's something really bad happens when they're finally like, oh yeah, I'm not supposed to feel this way. I guess I do actually need help.
1: Yeah. So I'm I'm old enough to remember nervous breakdown, right? We had this Mm -hmm. thing you could do in the old days, where you can say, nope, I just had a nervous breakdown. You go in timeout for a couple of months and then come back, right? We, we just don't yeah. allow people to do that. Anymore.
0: Yeah, I actually have one of my clients as an executive with an organization and they've actually had people, I think they have two people out right now on burnout leave, right? They it just got to be too much and their doctor's like, you cannot go to work anymore. And they're out on leave. And then it's just a cycle of when one person goes out, then the job still needs to be done. So then the people that are there have to pick up the slack. And it's yeah. this culture of the high achieving, the perfectionism, that we
1: well, have I, to do all yeah, the things. Yeah, a couple of points are one of the things I liked what you said when you were talking about how they get to this point in that there's something inside the head that says, if I drop this, I'm hurting someone else. Yep. So me burning myself to a crisp is actually a worthy sacrifice for these other people or for the organ. Right. Right
0: especially when you have like a big mission, like when you truly believe that the work you're doing is important, it's very hard to be able to shift and say, well, I am also important. How I cannot keep going at this same pace where we often need that outsider to be there to help you break that stuff down. Like, well, what is enough? And that's something that we work with people on often. It's like, well, how do you know when it's enough? Yeah. Because in your mind, when, you, when I ask people, it's like, oh no, I was working 18 hours, but it still wasn't enough. I was running in six-minute mile pace. It still wasn't enough, right? There's right. this constant like need for more. And when we're stuck in that mindset, it'll never feel like it. We'll never go to bed peacefully, resting and feeling like, oh, we did a good job today. <laughs> because it's like always this idea that we could have done more. We should have done more.
1: Yeah, that strikes close to home. Uh, <laughs> the other thing you said that strikes me as something that's new, to the last 20 years is the way work is organized, there's very little slack time. We've got the systems and technology in place that there's very little sort of cloudy time for workers where nobody knows where you are or what you're doing or the two-hour lunch or any of this stuff, right? All that is off the table. Those jobs don't exist anymore. We've had these series of sort of macroeconomic events that have ratcheted down the intensity of everybody's job.
0: Yeah. And I think there are like some companies that are doing that well, like they're actually recognizing this whole less is more thing. And really, I think you are talking about your company, like having wellness initiatives and things like that. But as a culture, it's always like, I have to do more. I have to be better because I need to, I don't want to lose my job. Like I need to be better than the next person because people are getting laid off or I don't know when I might get sick. So I got to do all this stuff now. Because just in case I'm not around tomorrow, I want to make sure that I've I've done enough today.
1: Yeah. It comes down to you can either do the work or worry about not having done the work. And that's one of the things that really impacts me is I get put in these positions where I can only do 70% of the quality that I want to do. And you have Mm -hmm. to walk into these major sort of events, which are what I like to call the uh, moments of truth sort of meetings not being as prepared as you like, right? And that just gives you so much stress.
0: Yeah. Instead of like people just acknowledging that. And we talk a lot about clients, this being able to say no, or being able to say like, this is how much I can do or how much I can offer. Yeah. But a lot of times we just take that on ourselves and we don't share it. We aren't able to say to our significant other or to our boss or to our colleague, like, hey, I can do this at 70% in this amount of time yep. and be okay with that. It's like, we do it at 70% and then we're like, oh my gosh, people are going to judge me. They're going to think I'm incompetent. Why didn't I do 75%? Right. And all of the, yeah, yeah. the time we spend stressing about what's happening. No, and,
1: and, and in your experience, I bet a lot of that chatter is solely within your own head. Uh, yes. Not, not the reality. So I yeah. think the other thing that I discovered, you talked about this fitness project I'm running at work, right? Mm -hmm. So I noticed that some people just started doing it because I gave them permission to, yeah, right? Because I said, it's okay, you can go for a walk. (laughs) Yeah, I had to tell them that, right? So it's all inside people's heads.
0: Yeah. And it's also like how we think we're going to be perceived by others by the choices that we make. And there's been so much research. And I think you were talking about it before as well. Like, how much more people can do like their efficiency and the productivity when you actually take breaks, when you go take a 10 minute walk, you have more clarity, you're able to do the job better than if you would have just sat at your desk, stressing about how stressed out you are.
1: Right. And yeah. uh, unfortunately, this all manifests physically as well. Yep, there's a whole bunch of you can probably read us off a litany of the physical symptoms you're talking about nagging injuries, you're talking about not being able to sleep, um, which That's a key indicator. If you can't sleep, then something's wrong with your life, right? Somewhere. Yeah. You talked about diet and digestive nutrition, that as well, that stuff. But I think it also has even deeper issues around things like eventually it it can lead to serious diseases where your immunocompromised body is just throwing up stress symptoms everywhere, right?
0: Yep, exactly.
1: All right. So now we've got everybody... Feeling depressed and scared about uh, how awful the (laughs) world is. Uh, How do we drag out of this hole? How do we dig out of this hole? Stop digging. That's what Mark said, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, for me, most of my work stems from mindfulness. And so one of the exercises that I do a lot in, in these corporate type of workshops is like this green, yellow, red exercise, where you spend some time thinking about how you feel when you're actually taking care of yourself and how you show up. Like, oh, I have more creativity. I have more patience. I'm able to sleep better. I'm able to make better decisions, quicker decisions, right? You spend time thinking about when I'm in the green, when I'm actually taking care of myself. Sometimes we have to think way far back because sometimes it's been so long since we're there. And then we think about the yellow, which is often what's overlooked. And it's like, well, what do I need to start noticing earlier? Those early warning signs of, oh, I am tossing it, turning at night and thinking about work and I can't sleep, or I'm starting to get headaches, or I'm starting to get slower when I'm running. And it's thinking of what are those early warning signs. And then the reds are, hey, these are the things that happen when I'm just completely not taking care of myself in any area. Like, oh, every day I notice I have a fight with my significant other. I'm making mistakes at work. I had a heart attack. I got diagnosed with Whatever thing from the doctor. And so, most often, it's that people are only aware of that red. It's like they're not paying attention to any of the stuff that's leading up to that. I'm just going to keep pushing. I'm going to keep doing more. It'll be okay a little bit longer. I'll just go get new pants because my pants are too tight now, right? We're just ignoring all of those things until we're in the red. And so, I like to focus on the yellow and this awareness of giving people the opportunity to pay attention. To say, well, what are those things that I need to just be aware of so that I don't get down into that red? When you're talking about going for walks, I would love if everybody just did those things every single day and started creating a life where we're implementing those things that fill us up, that make us feel good, that support our health mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. But sometimes before we get to that place, we just have to start paying attention to say, oh, right now I'm starting to get a headache at work. So I'm going to go for a walk now because prevention is, would be amazing if everybody was focused on prevention, but a lot of times we're not. And so when we can just start to be aware of, oh yeah, I haven't been feeling good, or I haven't had much of an appetite, huh? Maybe I should do something to take care of myself, right? And people need to recognize what those yellows are for them. Like what are those early warning signs for them? So they can start making more intentional choices, I talk a lot about taking aligned action. It's like, well, how do you want to feel? What's the impact that you want to make? Do you want to feel fulfilled? Do you want to go to work and feel like you did a good job? Do you want to have a good relationship with your significant other? Well, what are those things that you're doing every day to support you in achieving those goals for yourself? Because very often people are like, oh, I don't have time for this. I'm so busy. But when they actually look at how their day is spent, half of the time they're spent they're spending worrying about the stuff that they're not doing. (laughs) Then they're spending time like just zombies on couch because they're just so exhausted and they can't sleep. So they're wasting time doing other things that aren't important instead of really using every moment to take aligned action. It's okay to have fun. It's okay to hang out on your couch and watch TV, but is it really in alignment with what you need and how you want to feel and not just this lie that we're telling ourselves, like I don't have time. I don't have time to go for a walk. I don't have time to eat a healthy lunch. I have to work harder. Yeah.
1: That was a, my topic of my sermon last week was the, uh, I don't have time fallacy. So <laughs> the way I come yeah. that is say, time is abundant. Yes. So, but in reality, a lot of people have jobs with, that are crappy jobs, right? And mm-hmm. that is always, you're going to get showed up and yelled at by some customer. It's just there's always going to be more work than you could finish. What are some strategies to keep yourself out of the ditch in these situations besides finding a new job?
0: <laughs> I was about to say, I do have some people that come and they end up quitting their job because they realize yeah. they need to do something that's more fulfilling. But if that's not an option or not something that you want to do, it's again, going back to you thinking about what's most important and having a fulfilling life. Maybe your job isn't something that's super exciting to you. Maybe you do have to deal with crappy customers, but how else are you feeling fulfilled? Like Maybe you're able to do volunteer work. Maybe you're able to do stuff with your kids or out in the community, but finding other ways to support you, but really staying focused on that bigger picture. And why are you showing up every day? If it really is just for because it's a steady paycheck, then being grateful that you have a steady paycheck that maybe has really good insurance and maybe you like your coworkers or something. And really focusing on why you're there and what's important about you being there. And not focus just on, oh my gosh, I hate my customers or I hate my colleagues, whatever. Because a lot of people just get stuck on the negatives. Like if you're setting the intention to be there, make that an intentional choice that you're going to go to work every day and do your best, make the most out of it and focus on why it's important that you're there. Maybe you just have really good hours and there's no other options for you to be able to see your kids every night. Like whatever it is for you, focusing on. What's important about that? Focusing on your why and like yeah. finding gratitude in those moments instead of just thinking about how bad it sucks.
1: Yeah. If you didn't say I was going to say it, that's a mindset challenge, right? You can find good in almost anything. And then if you want to find a new job, find a new job, right? I mean, everything's abundant. You can find a new job or you can do something else, but you can look yeah. at a job. And like you say, you could say, these are great people I'm working with. I really like these people, right? Or I am helping these customers, you know, something to yeah. turn that around. It's a bit of a smoke screen and it's not perfect, but if you repeat it enough, it'll get you through <laughs> that day. And what I found is that that helps from a company point of view, if you can do that, that helps the effectiveness of the employee. Because if I'm showing up depressed and burnt out, I'm getting about 30% of the productivity, right? Yep. But if I'm showing up in the green, like you said, right? Pumped up and positive, then I'm in Mm -hmm. flow and I'm knocking stuff off. Right. Yeah. So it's a good investment.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: All right. So what are some of the tools that you are deploying here with these, uh, corporations to help employees around the mindfulness and, and the physical well-being?
0: Yeah, a lot of the, the tools are in teaching people simple, small things that they can do and really starting from this foundation of awareness to be able to pay attention to when they need it. And so a lot of my clients end up implementing things where they have it as a regular practice. Like I know every day I need to go for a walk or I know every day I'm going to take five minutes and, and meditate. Or that they're able to start recognizing like, well, right now I know I need something. And so we practice different types of tools, whether it's gratitude or breathing or movement, but giving people short, easy things that they can do. I believe in keeping things simple and easy and not like, yes, I teach hour-long yoga classes, but it's not necessarily about saying everybody needs to take an hour of yoga every day to feel good. It's right. all about helping people understand what it is that they need, because what makes me feel good isn't necessarily the same thing that's going to make you feel good. But I need you to be able to know what it is that that fills you, what it is that drains you, and what are yep. those things that are happening in your life where you really need to support your well-being, where you notice that you're not feeling your best So what are some simple tools that we can practice together so that you know how to use them on your own when you need them?
1: Yeah, good. That's perfect. Because then when you find those yellow light situations where you're saying, oh, I'm about to roll into one of those moods again, you have the tool to say, nope, here's how we turned around or or at least set the expectations, right?
0: And most of my clients are people who came to me saying like, I can't meditate. I have my anxiety is too high. All I do is think the whole time. Or I don't have time for that.
1: Right. Welcome to the club. That's everybody.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so I really love being able to support those people. And they're like, oh wow, I actually can do
1: this.
0: <laughs> I actually do feel better. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be anything long. It could literally 30 seconds and that
1: could make a shift for you.
0: But it's okay. just having that practice and then starting to know when
1: you need when you need what. Yeah. Good meditation practices will give you that power of now to sort of step back and say, wait a second, what's going on? And be able to see it coming. Yeah. So give me your best success story, your best story over your last 20 years. Oh oh my goodness.
0: I don't know if this is necessarily fitting for your audience, but for me, I also work with people who are like really far in the red. When people who have tried to commit suicide or have had suicidal ideations, because they were just so burnt out, overwhelmed, struggling, and didn't feel supported. So for me, like that's one of my whys is to support people in not getting to that place or for people who have been in that place to feel hopeful for the future again and to be able to shift out of that. So there are quite a few people that I've worked with over the years that have been in that place of trying or having suicidal ideations that are now thriving using these practices and then them going out and sharing it with others or using their own gifts to make a positive impact in the world. So for me, it's so rewarding Yeah. to be able to teach people the tools that they need to thrive.
1: There you go. You're literally saving people's lives. Oh, yeah. there's, there's your why, huh? Yeah. And that it
0: spreads right. that I believe like I'm supporting you so that you can go and support others. And that way just have this community of supporting one another.
1: Sure. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. So how do people find you?
0: Yeah. My website is strongbynaturewellness.com. Strong by nature
1: wellness, all one word?
0: Strong by nature wellness, all one word. And I work with organizations, a lot of nonprofits, tech companies, healthcare, high achievers, and I work with individuals, and then I also work with groups,
1: All right. all awesome.
0: focused on peace and well-being.
1: Yeah, we could use more peace and well-being in our lives,
0: right? <laughs> yeah, can't we all?
1: Well, uh, thank you very much for your wisdom today. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much, Chris. I'm grateful to be here.
1: Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what
0: we already know.
1: How do professional athletes deal with career-ending injuries? What happens to those thousands of athletes who are at the top of their sport and they suffer a career-ending injury, and what can we learn from it? I was drawn to this topic over the last few weeks by a malevolent pincer movement of two angry forces, the first being a knee injury that doesn't seem to want to go away, and no one seems to know why. The second is the inevitable march of age. When I get these serious sidelining injuries, I have a history of them every five years or so. (laughs) My head immediately goes to worst case scenarios. My inner demons start asking poor questions. What if this is it? What if I'm done running? How am I going to live without it? And as a side note, I do expect to fully recover from this current setback and go on to do many more adventures, but it is a point of introspection where you can literally step off the treadmill of training and look at how it fits into your life. And so I might use the terms introspection or reassessment. But anyhow, back to the story. I begin to understand how much of my lifestyle is wrapped around those workouts and those big races. And I feel the cold winds of loss ripping through the holes left when these athletic anchors are gone. And one of the questions I had was, what do real athletes do? (laughs) How does the star high school or college player deal with their entire life trajectory changing suddenly? How do they find their way out of the stinking morass of self-pity and sadness into coping and eventually finding a new purpose? And of course, I found someone else had had this idea and created a sport group around it. That group is called SidelinedUSA.org, and they have a resources page of insightful articles for helping permanently sidelined athletes find a meaningful way forward. On this page, they have athletes who have gone through this career-ending shift. They have these athletes document how they navigated the change in their own words. And there are a good variety of perspectives, different competitive sports, different levels of competition, all brought together by that shared experience where the doctor says, you can't do X, Y, Z. We recommend you not X, Y, Z anymore and most of these athletes will experience shock and anger and depression and go through the meat grinder stages of loss but eventually they begin to move forward and what are some of the strategies well they all said you need someone to talk to talk to someone athletes are so focused and self-reliant by nature that they don't always have the support systems they need for this kind of transition It helps to find someone you can trust to talk about it with. And this is probably someone outside of the current support or sport framework. Talk it out means getting those emotions out, not sitting on them and trying to be strong. Secondly, they advise to take a broader perspective when you think about your life. Think about all the other things that you do and love besides this thing. Celebrate your whole life, not just this one aspect. Next is to focus on the future, because you can't change the past. Let it go, and start working and moving forward. Next is to find some other interest or pursuit that you can pour your energies into. The same things that made you good at your sport can translate into multiple other pursuits. And consider a pursuit that aligns with your sport without direct competition, like coaching. Find ways to help people. By helping others, you'll find reason and purpose. And it's important as an athlete to stay physically active. Finally, you need to have faith. You will find a life just as fulfilling after you make this transition. But you need to have faith that that will happen. You need to believe it will happen. A consistent theme across these recovery stories is using what your sport taught you to continue success outside of the sport. So what are those things? Think about it. The grit and determination to do hard things in pursuit of a goal. The consistency of showing up every day to work out. The ability to set a big goal. Create a plan to get there and execute on that plan, and adapt in the face of daily uncertainties. Those are skills and demonstrated capabilities that apply to any pursuit. And wellness is not just physical. Wellness is mind, body, and spirit. Sometimes we lose this in the simplicity of a hard training cycle. Moving forward through this transition need to make sure that you have balance in all these areas. The main strategy here is the game's not over. You just are switching playing fields. And one of the best articles I read was by an ex-skater, and she had her eyes on the Olympics but got sidelined by a knee injury. Instead of giving up, she transitioned through the grieving and sadness but kept her mindset as an athlete and applied that to everything else in her life and you can feel this fire in her she advises don't deny who you are you're an athlete you can't change that it isn't what you did it's part of who you were it should still be part of who you are you may not be a skater or a runner anymore but you're still an athlete you eat like an athlete you train for life like an athlete you'll you still train But now you train to not suck at life. And I'll quote directly from her now to take this article out. I know that you are scared, lonely, and sad. I want you to know you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. In fact, you're going to be better than okay. You're going to be amazing. You're going to have a wonderful life. Remember who you are. You are an athlete and a competitor. Never ever lose sight of that lean into that and be the champion of your own life and that was val jones a former competitive figure skater okay now we're going to move you towards the exit please okay my friends we have burned out to the end of episode 4-460 of the run run live podcast that's it man i'm done Like I said in the intro, I've got a century ride on the calendar this week with my buddies after that. Uh, Next up is the Bird and Hand Half Marathon in Pennsylvania in September. And I know I can't really run, but these folks are the Galloway crew, so I plan to just tuck in with some of the run walkers and have a stroll. I mean, it's only a half marathon. It ain't nothing. A little bit more concerning is that I'm signed up for the virtual Boston in October, so I guess I'll just do the same thing and walk around a six, seven, eight-hour Boston. I mean, look at it this way. It will be an interesting experiment. Ken, Chris, with zero training and zero mileage, complete a marathon. Place your bets. Then we have to think about the future, and guess what? I'm turning a new age group in 2022. Yeah, extra time for me to qualify. So I've been thinking a lot about starting to believe in myself again and taking on the the challenge. And maybe I can manifest a new BQ somewhere on my new manifested knee. I'm also thinking about running for zero, uh, the end of prostate cancer, which I usually run for. But I have a friend in my running club who's in in bad shape right now with the prostate cancer, and it's hitting me pretty close to home, so I should do something for him. Makes me mad, sort of, that as a society we find all this other stupid shit to focus on when we could be finding a cure for cancer. But anyhow, on a lighter note, I have an Ollie update for you. Ollie, the crazy collie. I had my evaluation with the new trainer. Yes, this is my third trainer. This outfit is called K9 Training. And I went up and I met the owner, Ramon. And Ramon is like something out of a movie. Yeah, like a movie about the army. Big dude, intense, military, weightlifter. Anyhow, he evaluated Ollie and they decided that Ollie was okay for the semi private lessons. And one of the tests was Ramon bringing in his dog, a shepherd, and while I'm holding Ollie on the leash, he has his dog walk back and forth and basically do some drills in front of Ollie to see if Ollie freaks out. Ollie did not freak out. Ollie thought it was very entertaining, wanted to join in, and Ramon is is drilling this dog off leash, right, and giving commands to it in German. And the Shepherd is as efficient off leash as a drill sergeant's pride and joy. So, yeah, very military. So, bottom line, not giving up on Ollie. And I think he's met his match with Ramon. We have had a lot of smoke in the air in New England this week. So, maybe it was good I didn't run. Apparently, from wildfires in Canada, you could see the smoke in the air. It was hazy, you could smell it. And me being me, was reminded of a phrase that writers use when describing smoke in the air. They always say the smoke hung like a pall. And I thought about that because that's an interesting word, pall. And I wanted to know what pall meant, and did it have something to do with pallbearers at a funeral, or maybe Pall Mall cigarettes? Right, you know, smoke, cigarettes. I could see a connection, but alas. Pall Malls were created in 1899, and they were named after a posh street in London to sell cigarettes to rich people. And that street, it turns out, was named after a game similar to modern croquet in the Middle Ages or the, the Renaissance that they played there. And it was called Pall Mall or some variation of Pall Mall. And that literally means ball mallet in Italian. And one of my favorite authors, Kurt Vonnegut, said of his Pall Malls that they were a classy way to commit suicide, which I think is amusing. And they were originally pronounced Pall Malls (laughs) in America before we got radio and were taught the correct way to pronounce Pall Mall. But the smoke from a fire being described as a pall hanging over the land is not, nor does it have anything to do with cigarettes. Going back to the fire smoke that hung like a pall, nothing to do with cigarettes. It has to do with death. So that pall, that's the cloth that they drape over a casket. And pallbearers are carrying that. So when our modern writers say the smoke hung like a pall, they are invoking the misery and darkness of death over the land. And on that cherry note, remember... To manifest something good this week and i'll see you out there i will
0: and then he thought that he just couldn't die so ned he laughed so hard it made him cry